0: Alright, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Exodus as we begin a new study together tonight. We finished Genesis last week, and this evening we find ourselves here beginning our next book in the book of Exodus together. And the book of Exodus is basically, in some ways, just a continuation of the narrative from Genesis. Uh, Historically, it just sort of continues the story where we left off, and uh, the word Exodus basically just means a departure uh, or a going out, and as we see, that's really what the book of Exodus records for us. Uh, it records, in a sense, the transition of a clan of people, Jacob and his 12 sons and their wives and children and grandchildren and so forth, a, a population of about you know, 70, 75 people or so, Uh, transitioning over to Egypt as Joseph remember in that place of prominence there as the prime minister helping assisting Pharaoh during the time of the great prosperity and famine revealing himself to his family after they thought he had perished off the scene inviting them to come and live with him and they then settled into an area of Egypt according to the prophecy that uh, God gave Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 that that his people, uh, the people of Abraham's lineage, would be in a foreign land for, remember, a period of four generations, it said, until the iniquity of the Amorites reached its full, and then God would then bring them back uh, into the promised land. So, uh, as we pick up here in the book of Exodus, basically what we now get is the story, the narrative historically of the transition Number one of that small population of people, again a tribe or a clan of 70-75 people, as it then transitions from that, a clan, into an incredibly large-sized nation, uh, estimates we believe somewhere around maybe between uh, one and a half to three million people when they actually then exodus out of the land uh, and go back into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, that in a matter of just... A few generations, God causes tremendous exponential growth, and we really see the formation of a nation. So the book of Exodus, in some ways, is a a book of transition from being a clan or a tribe to an actual large-scale nation, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, which, of course, becomes a very prominent and important nation, God's chosen people. Uh, In the Bible. It also gives to us, of course, just again, the transition in a sense, as God takes them out from under a place of bondage and slavery and brings about a tremendous deliverance. It shows us uh, the transition of many different things as we go through it. And the theme really, in some ways, if you were to put a theme on the book of Exodus on top of, I think, a transitional uh, type uh, narrative, it's also clearly obviously a book of redemption. And that really seems to be very thematic as you go through the book of Exodus. It shows us, again, the need for redemption. It shows us... Uh, the, the way of redemption through the shed blood of a lamb and so forth, and, and God institutes the sacrificial system and these kind of things in a more codified manner. And it really deals a lot with that. It, we, of course, have the Redeemer or the Deliverer come on the scene, Moses. And, and we'll see as we go through this, again, many of the types and pictures uh, how Moses... Uh, becomes in many ways a very strong figure and and prefigurement of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How God raises up a deliverer and and sends them to his people and and calls them out of their bondage and out of their slavery and then ultimately uh, through the shed blood of a lamb leads them into the promised land that God intends for their lives instead and the the place of Egypt, of course, becomes a very strong type of the world. Uh, and many times in the Bible, Egypt is pictured in that way, to be a picture or a typology of the world and, and the slavery that they're in there, a picture of the bondage and slavery to sin before we come to Christ. And, and so we'll see a lot of these different uh, pictures as we go through. Yes, we're looking at a recorded narrative, historically, actual events. But as always, we want to look at the Bible uh, through the lens uh, uh, of Jesus Christ, as the Bible tells us in many places, you know, lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, the writer says, uh, as well as Jesus himself in Luke 24 and other places speaks uh, there to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. And he says, look, all these things uh, from, you know, Moses to the prophets, they they all speak concerning me. And so as we look at these things, and not just the things I mentioned, but again, even the Passover scene, a picture of, of Christ becoming our Passover lamb. As we look at some of the feasts and the different laws and so forth, we want to look at them recognizing that they actually are all things that God was setting before them that foreshadowed and pictured and pointed to the ultimate fulfillment of who Jesus Christ would be. He would become our Sabbath and so forth. Uh, as we go through, we'll we'll see these things. So we pick it up here in verse 1. And again, you'll see as it's sort of just a connection, it says now as the first word in the book of Exodus. It, it literally could also be be translated and, and the idea being connecting back to our narrative that we just left off in Genesis chapter 50. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel, remember, which is the name that Jacob received as God transitioned his name uh, to Israel, uh, these are the names of the children of Jacob or Israel, who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. So you see the synonymous interchange. And then the listing of the the, the twelve men who became representative of the twelve tribes of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, remember who will become the uh, Levitical line where the priesthood and so forth comes from. Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all those who were descendants of Jacob, the Bible again reminds us, were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already indicating uh, that he was already there, not necessarily included in that number. So again, you know, 70, 75 in that range. But again, keep in mind, uh, the Bible setting this before us to show us the tremendous growth, that God brought in the season of time when that was what God intended to do. And ultimately, that's something that God is going to cause supernaturally and sovereignly to happen. So we have that sort of connection to where we were. Verse 6 then picks up right where the end of Genesis left off. Remember, we saw that ultimately Joseph himself died as well. And it says, and all his brothers and all that generation... So uh, again, w- we we've passed now a, a number of years. Uh, we can't be dogmatic exactly. Different speculations are given how much time's elapsed from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. What we do know, verse six tells us, is that in the in the process of time, Joseph died, which that was the end of Genesis 50. Now all of his brothers have passed away, and it seems all of that generation, and now another generation has risen up after them. Verse 7, but the children of Israel, notice, were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. Now I want you to take notice there. Again, it's not as if God is just redundant in the way that He speaks. And you know, I'm at times accused of that, you know, being repetitious and and redundant. Again, keep in mind that it's through redundancy and repetition that we learn uh, in our lives. As that statistic one time before that, typically people remember 25% of what they hear two times. So what you hear twice. You retain 25% of that. I will have you know that is one of the reasons why, purposely, in, in the way that I teach, particularly on a Sunday morning in the format there, why I like to read a text up front and then still go back and expound the text afterwards, uh, giving the you know, exposition of that because I figure, you know what, if I read the text twice i know the word of god went into, into people's ears twice and i would much rather people remember the written text and the word of god than any of the exposition or explanation that i would give because my words are, are, are not inspired by god this is inspired by god this is what is not going to return void but accomplish the purpose for which god sent it so uh, here again we notice in verse seven it almost sounds like god's being a little bit redundant i mean you look at the The adjectives, it's it's purposeful here. The Hebrew is purposeful. There's repetition. The children of Israel, they were fruitful. Notice, increased abundantly, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty. The land was filled with them. God's trying to impress upon us. I think that this was more than just normal population growth. That at a set time, for a set reason, when they were in the set place that God intended them to be there in Goshen. Remember we said God directed them to Goshen, brought them to Egypt, because it was a great place really to grow and expand a nation. It was purposeful. To be in Canaan and to grow would have been very detrimental potentially to the people of Israel because to be there in Canaan, the Canaanites openly welcomed intermarriage among their sons and daughters, sharing of their practices and cultures and customs, And that would have more than likely caused the people of Israel, instead of being separate the way God intended them to be and their line being pure in their generations as a people group, they would have very much more quickly intermingled and became, in a sense, amalgamated with all the other pagan idolatrous peoples in the land of Canaan. But to go to Egypt was really a marvelous idea by God because the Egyptians, we know by ancient culture, as I said before, were extremely, in a sense, there's not a the better way to say it, a very racial people. They felt that they were a superior race in the ancient culture, and because of that, and as we saw it in our study, as, as uh, Joseph invited them to come to Egypt, Egyptians didn't want to deal with anybody other than Egyptians. They simply felt they were that superior of a race, they would never want to intermarry, they would never want to share in their interactions and customs and culture because they felt they were so superior. And that arrogancy, again, God used that arrogancy actually in a way whereby the Egyptians would allow the Joseph's uh, brothers and family members to come and dwell there in their land, but they kind of stood separate apart. And that separation allowed God to grow the nation in a pure and a healthy place. And again, just the wisdom of God, how he he sees things, and operates in the ways, and, and we'll take notice as we go through this, even the difficulties and the traumatic and, and hard things that are all happening, God's using all those pieces, and he's superintending over everything. If there's one thing we learned of the life of Joseph, is that even what's intended for evil and hurt and harm, God can always turn things around for good, and still use things for his ultimate purposes. Uh, and, and such is, is the way here. There's, there's a multiplication that's happening, but it's purposeful. And we know it's purposeful because, again, what God is seeking to do is to develop a nation. I just want to read to you uh, what the Bible says in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was preaching his sermon regarding the history of the nation of Israel. Stephen said this. Just listen quickly before we move on. Acts seven seventeen. it says, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt To another king arose who did not know Joseph. So again, take notice of that. This is all the whole thing of fulfillment of a prophecy God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. And the Bible tells us, Stephen, as he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it says, when the time of the promise drew near for God to bring about this incredible deliverance and transition them out of Egypt and bring them into Canaan where he would settle his people into the promised land he intended for them, as well as to use them as an instrument to discipline the wicked Canaanite Amorite people for their ungodly practices when that iniquity had reached its full, and amazing, it took 400 years. That's how patient and tolerant God is, even with wickedness, rebellion, and people and, and nations that are doing horrific ungodly immoral things God gave him 400 years until it finally reached its full and God said I have no other ultimatum I have to wow. judge now and and when that time came for God to move his people in and to use them the Israelites as his instruments to discipline and judge the people of the Amorites because of their pagan culture and their wicked practices against God it says when that time of the promise near, that then the people grew and multiplied in Egypt in other words when God was bringing the promise together it was at the set time that God it's almost like he flipped the switch and then he just flipped the switch and all of a sudden and a supernatural uh growth and multiplication began to happen and it's almost as if God was in control of that and just turned the knob at the right hour and the right time so you have something beyond natural growth and population here you have something that God is completely involved in what's happening Incredible growth and increase. And verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of a war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. So the Bible tells us that as these things were unfolding, what happens is that prior king of Egypt, that prior Pharaoh, who, remember, loved Joseph because Joseph was the one who interpreted his dream, gave this incredibly wise plan and then administrated and oversaw the whole plan to store up the grain in the seven years of prosperity so that it would last through the seven years of famine and, and he administrated on behalf of the empire of Egypt in an incredible way. And we saw that there was a tremendous love and respect that that Pharaoh had for Joseph because of who he was and what he did, even though he was a, a Hebrew slave in a sense. And, and Joseph had tremendous favor with the throne. And because of the favor that Joseph had with the throne, remember, that favor that Joseph had with the throne then translated to those who were related to him. Well that's that's changed now. A new king comes on the scene and, and again we're not 100% certain some thinks this is during the you know the Hyksos dynasties and when exactly this took place and what king this is. I don't know if we can be 100% certain, but a new king comes on the scene. That king doesn't know Joseph in the sense that either he didn't have those interactions with him or over time you can imagine that respect and favor that Joseph had acquired with the Egyptians as generations pass and new people rise to power, uh, they tend to forget the value of what Joseph did. So in his, who's Joseph and, and who cares about Joseph's family? And, and this favor that was once there that Joseph brought is now beginning to quickly diminish. It is interesting to me to take into consideration why did the Jews, the people of Israel, have tremendous favor with the throne of the empire? It was for one reason because of the favor that Joseph brought to them. Uh, well, once that goes away, uh, that no longer exists anymore. And, of course, that's just a picture in some ways of, you know, w- when we have relationship with Jesus uh, and we know Jesus, we experience favor from the throne, from the throne of God. Uh, when somebody doesn't know Jesus and they don't want anything to do with Jesus and they, in a sense, ignore it, say, well, who's Jesus? So what well, that favor then diminishes because to be in connection with the Lord relationally, that's where favor descends from. In the same way Joseph's favor was what was carried down to the people. Well, this new king over Egypt, notice he seems to be coming a bit insecure as he sees the population of Israel increasing. And so in verse 9 and 10, he puts forth word to his people in the empire and he says, look, the children of Israel, they're becoming more mightier than we are. That They're growing faster than we are. So apparently every time when he went to the, the Local Walmart there in Egypt. He realized, wait, there's more, uh, there's more, uh, there's more Hebrews here than there are Egyptians now, uh, and it, it seems like that everywhere I go, there's seeming to be more of these uh, Hebrew people than there are Egyptian people, and he starts to feel a little insecure and a little concerned, and, and he realizes that he benefits from their presence there, but he's becoming a little concerned in his insecurities that what might happen is if a war takes place and one of their enemies come against them, that they might use that expansive population as an opportunity to then capitalize on a revolt and join with their enemies and overthrow the Egyptian empire. So he says, you know what, uh, we need to deal shrewdly with these people and do whatever's necessary to stop and to hinder them from, from their prospering and their growth and so forth. So he now begins a process, a couple different things, to try and hinder the growth, the blessing, the favor of God that's upon their lives. And of course, it's exactly what the devil does in our lives, that when the Lord's favors upon our lives and God begins to bless and and the Lord is at work and he's beginning to fulfill his promises, you can guarantee the king of Egypt, the king of this present world, uh, the devil, the God of this age, is going to say with his little... Know, minions that he gathers around the gates of hell you know what 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 do we need to, we need to deal shrewdly with them and find some ways to halt what God's doing in their life and to hinder the promises from being fulfilled and to do whatever we can in shrewdness to try and bring again the gates of hell the, the plans and the ideas of hell against you and I as God's people to try and bring hindrances so that's exactly what this uh, King is going to now do. So the first thing he does, verse 11, is, is he tries to, in a sense, enslave them. It says, verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, notice, the more they multiplied and grew and they were in dread of the children of Israel so his first attempt is he says you know what we need to do is, is we need to we need to enslave these people we need to gain control so he says let's establish a group of taskmasters government officials who will put them to forced labor in a sense let's make them work on supply cities let's make them build structures and so forth and bring them under our control again he wants to bring them under their control enslave them so that they in a sense, the idea is they're under control, they'll be too exhausted to do anything they'll be too in a sense restricted to potentially have any of their own liberty in their lives and of course this is exactly what the devil wants to do to hinder any good and wonderful purpose in their lives what's one of the first things the devil wants to do he wants to enslave people again Paul says when he's writing to Timothy uh, that that there are those that we need to you know, pray for and to reach out to in hopes that they may come to repentance. He says, whom the devil has taken captive to do his will. And there are people who the devil, even Christians, the devil working against them has sought to take them captive to do his will. He ensnares them in some habit or some life-dominating situation where they're enslaved and they're in bondage to something so that he has control over them and in a sense they're hindered from experiencing all that God intends. So again, he wants to, to create that control over their lives. He says, let's get them to build for us some supply cities. But verse 12, notice his plan backfired. It says, the more that he afflicted them, the more they grew and the more they multiplied. And this so often is the way of God, that when the the you know the enemies of God come against the people of God, so many times it, it it's like Picture in your mind a a little fire on the ground and you try and stomp out the fire and instead what happens, instead of it going out, the embers and the sparks fly in different directions and then it just catches the brush and and more fires start. Uh, And that's what the devil many times tries to do. He tries to stomp out the church through persecution. He tries to stomp out the work of God through antagonism and spiritual attacks and warfare. He tries to stomp out the light of a Christian. And many times when the devil seeks to do that, so often the more he afflicts and the more persecution he brings, God is a way of just causing that to then backfire in his own face and further growth happens. And the work of God has expanded. And so many times uh, the, the, the blood of the martyrs in the church has been the seed then of just further growth and progression of the church and the body of Christ. So they just multiplied and grew more. So the Egyptians, verse 13, made the children of Israel serve with rigor. The idea is they made it more rigorous for them. They brought greater severity in the bondage and the slavery. They made their lives, verse 14, bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and that would be the mud bricks, where they would, again, from the Nile and so forth, they would bake uh, the bricks with the mud to make mud bricks. That was how they built in that day among the uh, ancient Egyptian culture. And in all manner of service in the field, and all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So, What does he do? He he just intensifies the slavery, the bondage. Again, you notice the descriptive terms God sets before us there. Uh, Again, for a long period of time, they were subject to forced labor. And it was, the Bible says, bitter. It was rigorous. It was severe. They were under the whips of a taskmaster. This was what they experienced. And this was, however, even though it was very unpleasant... It was something that God allowed them to experience to do what? Make them cry out for deliverance. And it was the bitterness of their circumstances. It was the bondage and the rigorous, severe slavery and and the, the bitterness of the experiences and the whips and the taskmasters. It was that that, in a sense, made them so sick and tired and 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 unpleasant that they began, the Bible says, to cry out for deliverance. Chapter 2 ultimately tells us that the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage and cried out, and their cry came up before God because of their bondage, and then God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant and looked upon them and acknowledged them. And, And so many times you know The devil enslaves people in sin, but is it not true that sometimes that's what it takes for people? You know, that's maybe what it took for us to come to Christ. That's what it still to this day it takes many people to come to Christ. Sometimes I think we almost, in loving compassion and impatience, we almost can get in the Lord's way to ultimately bring His deliverance and salvation in a person's life because here they are and they're under the whip of the, Satan's taskmaster over their life and the bondage and the bitterness of a life of sin and rebellion against God. And again, whether it's indulgence and some substance abuse or just a life that has just got them in bondage to, you know, to all types of the struggles that sin bring. And, and God's letting them go through the misery. And God's letting them feel the taskmaster's whip over their life and eating the bitter, miserable experiences of it, and we're always trying to intervene and rescue them. Oh, i got to bail them out. I feel so bad. Oh, let me just bail them out somehow and help them. And God's going, every time you bail them out, that's another few days it takes for them to cry out and say, God, deliver me. Please, God, will you rescue me? Which is ultimately the very thing that brings the transition of God's deliverance in their life. See, God is a way of using even what Satan brings as a miserable experience because of bondage and slavery to sin. God is a way of using that as the very thing that precipitates salvation and deliverance when we cry out for him and then he sends the deliverer, his son Jesus Christ, delivering us in our lives. So again, God using even the misery of this, preparing them so that they would want deliverance and then they would really appreciate that deliverance when it came and they would enjoy the promised land because they realized what God had really done for them. So here they are in bondage. That's not working. They're still expanding. So this king of Egypt speaks of another idea. He says, well, that's not working. I thought if I exhausted them and made their life miserable, they'd be too tired to keep having children and they'd be so exhausted and so much pain. The last thing they think about is being prolific and having more children. Well, that didn't work. So he says, I, well, I have to get more severe. And he, well, he becomes more diabolical in his attempts. And this is what Satan does too, because Satan is literally just, he's a madman. And he will do whatever he's got to do to rob, kill, and destroy. Verse 15 says, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives and said, of whom the name of the one was Shipra, and the name of the other was Puah.' No relation to Winnie there, i sure. I'm sorry, it's... I know you work hard all day, keep you awake. And he said, verse sixteen, When you do the duties of a midwife or the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, and you know, there's dispute over what the Hebrew means there. It seems to indicate like flat stones, these birth stools. So we're not certain. I mean, did they you know did they you know squat over these birth stones when they gave birth to their children or exactly how it was used? But that's that's the term literally indicates like a flat Stone, the type of stone typically that was used when they would mold a piece of clay. They put clay on, which, uh, interesting, again, as we think of God as our potter and the clay. uh, But that's the term here used for these birth stools, however they did it in that culture. Sounds a little less desirable than what you get today. Uh, But nonetheless, he says, When you see the Hebrew women on those birth stools, if it, notice, verse 16, When it's a boy, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter then she shall live. So the edict comes towards these Hebrew midwives and he talks to two of them. Again it's a huge nation. Maybe these are two prominent Hebrew midwives, maybe they're the, I don't know, you know the, uh, among the uh, midwife uh, union they're the two highest ones or whatever. He goes to two of them. Maybe he said this to all of them or maybe they were to pass the word around and he basically gives an edict to these Hebrew midwives and says look, whenever you're helping assist in the delivery process of the Hebrew women when they're pregnant and delivering their children, he says, if it's a boy, whenever it's a male, and and why did he want to exterminate the males? Because they could become military force. So that's why there was the concern of males, because they would then become the military force that could overthrow. There wasn't as much concern of a female because there didn't seem to be as much of a military threat, and they could just marry the female wives to their Egyptian sons and then just amalgamate and, in a sense, do away with the nation. So that's why here the the pinpoint is on the males. But notice, that again, the the diabolical uh, attitude here. If it's a male, kill him. So as soon as that child's born, when you see it's sex, if it's a male, just murder it right on the spot. Put it to death as soon as it's born. Now, we look at that, and that, I mean, that seems pretty gruesome, but in some senses, let us never forget... Uh, Though we may seem to do it in a little more conventional and hygienic way, in a sense, uh, when we're performing abortions and late-term abortions and partial birth abortions, uh, which our culture all participates in, uh, we're doing much the same thing. Uh, It may not be, well, they're a male instead of a female, and typically it's just, uh, I don't want this child to come into the world for my own personal reasons in the same way that this king of Egypt this pharaoh in his evilness did not want male children to come in so he can just well then exterminate them their life has no value exterminating do away with them now again this all being a picture as I said of, of the devil and I showed you that's the devil's intention to rob kill and destroy he wants to destroy life this is the pointer destroy life it has no value destroy life and this is always what the devil does whether it's Lying to a a pregnant woman who's struggling with thoughts and fears of how am I going to raise this child or I didn't plan on this child and and, and all those things that tend to become fears and concerns that ultimately sometimes lead a woman uh, to feel she has no other recourse than to abort her child. And of course when he feeds that lie to them he never tells them all of the regret and the pain and the traumatic mental experiences they're going to have the rest of their life as they wrestle with that he just feeds the lie no just just exterminate the life just, it's better to just exterminate the life and I believe it's a lie from Satan and thankfully even when people have participated in that again, and if that is you tonight or you know someone who has the blood of Jesus Christ is fully sufficient to forgive anything and that can be cleansed and forgiven like any other sin and mistake and that guilt taken away because it does bring a tremendous tremendous amount of guilt Whether you were the father and you encouraged it for some gal you were dating, that you got pregnant, or whether you're a woman participating in it. But but in essence, it's the same thing. But the source of it is always from the king of Egypt. It's from an evil king. It's from the devil himself. It's the same source of suicide. I spent an hour and a half on the phone today with a, a, a woman I don't know and I've never met who called me and said, I don't attend your church. I attend another church, but I can't talk to them, and I'm struggling with suicide. What do I do? And you, know, and you just just listen to her for for an hour and a half. One, it saddens me that again the devil is the one who's putting that lie in, into her mind. It saddens me twice as much that she says I I can't go to my own church, but, uh, but I, somebody gave me your number. Can you talk to me? Can you help me? But I can just it's the lie of the devil. He he devalues life. He devalues life. Whether it's suicide killing of babies and children. Here we see this happening. Verse 17, notice, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved the male children alive. So they had a greater fear of God than they did of their king, which is a beautiful thing. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women... They're not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively, and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, again, is this true? What, what, were they giving a true report? Uh, were they making this up? Was this a fabricated story because they realized, hey, we should obey God? And, and there is a higher law and certainly the law of God says to value life and we're created in the image of God and so like Peter and John in the book of Acts in chapter 4 and 5 where they were told don't preach the gospel and, and they had to make that choice of civil disobedience in a sense say remember we must obey God rather than men and if you're telling us we cannot preach the gospel which God has commanded us as our ultimate authority to do then you um, in all due respect, we're going to have to violate the law if you're telling us the law says that we can't do what God's command and law has told us to do, which is to preach the gospel. And they said we must obey God rather than men. So, in this dynamic, as you have them doing the same thing here, in a sense, you can look at it as civil disobedience. Again, same thing happened, remember, in the book of Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, when they were told to bow down before the Golden image, and, and they didn't, and they got tossed in the fiery furnace. Where, when Daniel in chapter 6 was told, Hey, you cannot pray anymore, a law was signed, no more prayer. And Daniel said, Well, if the law is uh, that I can't pray, then uh, God's law is that I am supposed to pray. And so, again, Daniel got tossed in lines to then. And, and there are times, and I wouldn't be surprised if more occasions arise, where that there may not be a law of the land. Civilly, that says we cannot do certain things that the Word of God says that we are to do and we should be doing, and we're forced to make an ultimatum. Now, let me just say this. If the time comes when it is necessary to obey God, and that means disobeying civilly the laws of the land, which the Bible does say in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, we are to obey the authorities and the laws of our land. But if the ultimatum comes where there's a conflict of what the law says and what God's Word says is the ultimate authority in my life, and we then have to make a choice. We should choose to obey God, but I tell you this, you better make sure that you have chapter and verse and pray and be certain sure that that is what God is calling you to do in that situation. I don't think we should ever flippantly just, well, you know, just, I don't like that particular political party, and I don't like that particular... Se-. God called us to be obedient and respectful to authority and to be model citizens and obey the laws of the land Uh, and to do all that we can to honor those in authority and honor the laws of the land while still honoring and obeying him. So how this dynamic worked out, it says very clearly, verse 17, the bottom line, it says, they feared God, so they didn't do what the king of Egypt did. They knew. They knew, look, God doesn't want us to kill people, to murder, to destroy life so they they didn't res, they didn't respond they didn't they weren't putting to death the male children as they were being asked to but they saved the children of life and when the king of Egypt asked them hey what are you doing you i hear that you're not putting to death the male children he says verse 18 well, what what are you doing you're keeping the male children alive their response is well we don't know what, what to do pharaoh you know the, the Hebrew women they're not like the Egyptian women He says, they're lively and they give birth before the midwives can get there now Possibly that could be true. I mean, certainly there was probably a very big distinction between the Hebrew women and the Egyptian women. The Hebrew women were living as forced slaves every day under the taskmaster's whip, out in the field making bricks, you know. So uh, they, unlike the Egyptian women who probably were, you know, at home watching the shopping channel, getting manicures, you know. And so maybe the Egyptian women and the Hebrew women were different in the way they delivered. Those Hebrew women, hey, here it comes, and there you go, and uh, tomorrow it's back out to the field, and the whip was cracking, and so there could be a part of that dynamic that there was truth in. It could be that they wisely just said, you know what, hey, we understand typically how the birth process happens, so let's purposely show up a little bit late after the child is born. And then, in a sense, they weren't lying. Hey, what do you want us to do? Every time we get there, the baby's already born, taken away. Before we get there, so we have no control of the situation. Uh, How exactly the dynamic unfolded, the principle there is still clear. They feared God more than they feared this Egyptian wicked king. And they sought to honor God and to keep the male children alive. And again, what happens? Time number two, Pharaoh's plan, frustrated. Here's a second attempt. I'm going to stop them. I'm going to hinder God's purpose and plan in their life. I'm going to diminish. And second time, God overturns and foils their plan because he puts the fear of God into the heart of two women. Interesting. Two women who had the fear of God that said, we will not do what's unethical. We will not do what's ungodly. And they said, we will fear God and honor God more than we fear man. And because two women were godly women, God as a catalyst used that to save a whole bunch of people's lives. Again, don't ever diminish the value of how God can use all things. You know, just, just two women who loved the Lord and feared God and were useful to really turn the tide of what could have been an extermination, a genocide of the Jewish race. Verse 20 says, Therefore God dealt well with those midwives, notice, and the people multiplied, they just kept growing and grew mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them because they were doing what pleased God. Notice, God blesses obedience. God blesses and honors those who honor him. The Bible says those who honor him, God will honor. Because they honored God, the idea is that God blessed them, provided households, indicates that, you know, that he provided children for them. He gave them their own children as a gift and a reward. And just a reminder, the Bible says that children are a heritage from the Lord. So notice God's provision for them, God's reward for what they did, what was it? It was giving them children. That's a good reminder for us that we again, here you have a wicked king in an empire in an ungodly culture that's totally devaluing them. And saying, Just murder children, just murder them. They have no value, just murder them. And now on the flip side of that, here you have the heart of God. Here you have the lie of the devil and you have the heart of God and God says, You know what, I want to reward you midwives for saving male children. It shows the high esteem and the value that God puts upon children. Like he sees them as a reward, as a heritage from the Lord, that they're a blessing. Yeah, they're a challenged race, but they're a blessing and a reward when God gives them to us. And God wants us to see that value. He gave them children because they feared God and spared the male children. Verse 22 So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Notice his last command, now he just tells the whole population. The thing with the midwives didn't work, so he puts out an edict among the empire to all of his citizens, to all his people, saying, Every son who is born, the ideas of the Hebrews, anytime you find a male child, you shall cast him into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So if you see a male child, you hear of a male child that's born, take that male child and go down to the Nile River and throw it in the river and drown it. So, again, an effort of genocide. Genocide. And you see where the the impulse of this comes from. Again, it's diabolical. It's satanic in its origin. And here it is uh, from the very inception, the seedbed of the Jewish nation, anti-Semitism. It's diabolical. It's satanic. And it will happen throughout the history of Israel. What, where does it come from? This tremendous hatred and animosity to try and do away with the Jewish people as a race and, and the nation of Israel? It's satanic from the very beginning of the course because that's God's chosen people, and it's the line through which the Messiah would ultimately come. And and so here you have this this early attempt from here. You know, follow up to modern versions of someone like Hitler and so forth, it's satanic. This attempt of genocide, throw the sons into the river. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife of the daughter of Levi. And We know from other scriptures, these are Moses' parents. Their names, the man was uh, Amram and Jochebed his wife, these become Moses' parents. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt pitch and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister, you know, this is Miriam, she's about five to eight years old at this point, Moses' older sister, his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. So here we have now the account of God bringing about in the midst of all this. He's bringing together his promise. God now begins to raise up a deliverer. And this Jewish man and woman, Jacobed and Amram, this husband and wife, they conceive a child. They're from the tribe of Levi. It's not their first child. We know they have Miriam, who's five to eight years old. Aaron, who was three years older than Moses. And now this third child they have, and it's a male son. And it says, verse 2, the Hebrew just tells us, God records, he was a beautiful child, so she hid him for three months. Now, again, other accounts seem to give us an indication that there was something that they sensed as they looked at Moses. And we're not given information, it's not recorded for us, that calls them, it seems, to recognize there is something special God has intended for this child's life. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So, something, again... I don't want to read too far into it, but again, they had two other children. But something about when Moses was born, these two godly people realized this is their son. He's supposed to be thrown into the river. At the threat of their own life, they realized there is something, not just that that he's valuable, but there's something unique about this child, something they sensed in their heart. God has a plan for this child. God has a special purpose for him. Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I ordained you as a prophet unto the nations. Sometimes people will ask you if you do something, you serve the Lord at some capacity, Well, how how long have you been a missionary? Or how long have you been a pastor? And and, Truthfully, the right answer to that is uh, from conception. Because from conception was when God ordained us for what his plan was for our life. When when God conceived us in our mother's womb, he died. Okay, and, and this is exactly what I've ordained you to do, and, and it just fleshes itself out as we live out our lives. We sense the calling, and somehow this godly couple sense something about young Moses, so they, they were you know put additional effort. They hid him for three months. They could only hide him for so long, but then they recognizing, and it says that it was by faith. Faith comes by hearing. So did they hear something from God? Hebrews 11 says it was by faith they hid him. And then ultimately, by faith, when they could no longer hide him, they put him in this little basket, this little ark, like a little boat. They daubed it with asphalt and pitch to waterproof it. And then they put it in the reeds by the river's bank uh, there in the Nile River. Now, again, this whole thing has to be by faith. Because think about what they're doing. Not only are they risking their own lives in jeopardy, they're not fearing the fact that they could lose their own lives for violating the, the king's edict. They put their their three month old son in a basket, a little, a little, and then they put that son, who's a male child, in the Nile River, crocodile infested, which is also the same river that every Egyptian is throwing male Hebrew children in to drown to death. And they're putting their child right in the place where all the other children are being thrown to be drowned. So there's a tremendous measure, the Bible says, of faith. They had some measure of faith in their heart. God's got a plan. And this is what we sense He's telling us to do. And it would be better to give Him up and to put Him on the altar and to, to just commit Him to God's care and say, you know what, God's got a plan, so God's going to preserve Him. And we fully trust. This may, This goes against contrary reason. It goes against natural affection of a parent to just give up their child because they believe that God has a plan and a purpose. So they put Him in this little basket Miriam, his sister, stands there kind of just keeping an eye. And again, what are, what are they sensing as well? Somehow God's going to orchestrate something and guess what God was. Because God orchestrated that very day that Pharaoh's daughter would go to that particular area and would see that baby there. And, and, and well, I'm telling you what the Bible says. I'd have to read it. That'd be better. Verse 5. We're going to finish the last few verses here. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Imagine that. What a coincidence. That very hour she decides, to, yeah, time for a bath, and why not go down to the river? And the Nile's quite a big river. Have you ever looked at it on a map? But guess exactly where she is prompted to go. And her maidens walk along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So he just lets out this wail again. Prior to that, seems maybe he wasn't crying, maybe the sun in his face or just the fear of being startled. And when the baby let out a weeping cry, she had noticed, I have an underline, I have a compassion on him, and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Now, she could have known it was a Hebrew children because she saw it was circumcised. That was a mark of the Hebrews, we know that. Could have been that she saw the birth call, but she recognized this is not an Egyptian child. She clearly knew hey, this child has been put in the river. This is this is a, a Hebrew male child. Now, she could have very easily, again, this is the daughter of Pharaoh. She could have very easily took the sentiments in the edict of her father and just this is a Hebrew child, I, and just took it and did what? Just cast it right back into the river. But instead, it says, the baby wept, and the Spirit of God moved on her heart, and her heart melted. And God softened her heart, and she had compassion for this little baby. Again, let me just see how God uses everything. Circumstances. God uses the cry of a little baby to change the heart that ultimately affects the course of history. This little baby cries, she has compassion, and then has the courage to actually decide to take this baby to herself and to adopt it. Which she's now risking her situation. How is she going to explain that she's found this child in the river and that she wants to raise it as her adopted child, but yet God moves in her heart because God's pulling all the strings and superintending over this whole thing. Again, the faith of his parents being rewarded. Their step of faith and then God honoring the step of faith along the way. It's interesting to me, in a sense... Uh, Jochebed, his mom, Moses' mom, and Amram, they really, in a sense, did exactly what Pharaoh asked them to do. What did they do? They put their male son into the river. They did it a little differently. But but the edict just simply said, every son born to you, cast him into the river. He didn't say, uh, but don't use a boat. So they, in a sense, well, we put our son in the river, God, but w- we're trusting that you're going to do something unique. Again, they're giving him away Trusting him into God's care. She has compassion. Verse 7 says, Then the sister Miriam spoke up to Pharaoh's daughter and said, Uh, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And there will be plenty of wet nurses available among Hebrew women. Why? Because they were giving birth to children and having them taken away and thrown into the river and murdered. And they would still have the lactation going on because they just gave birth to a child. So she, again, so wise. She said, hey, hey, do you want me to go get one of the Hebrew women so she can be a wet nurse for you? Because this wasn't her baby, but she would still have milk and be able to actually nurse the baby for you. And Pharaoh's daughter said, hey, that's a great idea. Go. So, again, she responds to this little eight-year-old girl's instructions. What are you going to tell me to do? I'm Pharaoh's daughter. What are you talking That's a great idea. Go get me a Hebrew woman to nurse this child. So she went, and look what she did. Hey, Mom, guess what? I got a job for you. (laughs) Mom, she says, she goes and gets Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, to Moses' mother now, take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Talk about government work. She gets to nurse her own child, and she gets paid for it. What Mom would not like that. Here, Nurse this child, and I'm going to pay you for nursing that child. That's an incredible deal there. When God's in something, it's usually wonderful. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And so she called his name Moses, which literally means drawn out of the water, saying, because I drew him out of the water. So I just want you to see this. This is a a good breaking point, but just hear me out for another minute or two before we close. Look what happens here. They give up their son and they give up the cherished treasured possession in a complete act of faith you want to talk about stepping outside of your comfort zone doing something that's contrary to your natural affection to human reason to give up your son like that to realize he could just be found and drowned and and so on and so forth but in faith they obey god in faith they they, they put everything out there they let go of everything and what does god do god intervenes orchestrates his plan and purpose through their step of faith he then gives back to them the thing that they gave up and let go of God says you, you gave up and I'm going to give it right back to you because in fact I'll tell you what I've got a really good deal I'm going to give the baby back to you and I'm going to pay you on the government's dime to nurse your own child and, and, and to be able to spend time with him with no fear or threat of anybody coming and taking him away and killing him and you'll have special I had a Egyptian secret service agent outside her door, because again, this was gonna be Pharaoh's daughter's adopted son, so she got to nurse that child until the time when she then, after the child was weaned, anywhere between maybe three to five years old, so she got a good amount of time with her son, knowing that God had a plan for this son, and then at some point, she apparently then transitioned him back over, and he became the adopted child of Pharaoh, and ends up in the palace in Egypt, where he's then raised for the next 40 years in in the ways of the Egyptians. But here's what I want you to think about and we'll pick up here next week is that then we really jump 40 years from chapter 2 verse 10 to chapter 2 verse 11. That's why I want to stop here because a 40-year gap takes place as Moses grows up. But I want you to think about something. As God puts back Moses in the arms of his mom, yes, she nursed him and enjoyed his affection and his company as a toddler for the next 3 to 5 years. But I guarantee What she also did was embed into his life everything she possibly could about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And talked to him about the ways of God and prayed over him and prayed for him and spoke into his life that she saw God had a plan for him. And she embedded in the heart of this little child the plans and the purposes and the ways of God for his life that had a profound impact years later when it says that he recognized, you know what, I sense that it would be better to forsake the ways of Egypt and to step into to call on the plan of God for my life. And it was all because God used the embedding of those things, I believe, in his heart in those early days as his mother was spending time with him. Listen, don't ever diminish the value of the impact, whether you're a mother, father, a grandparent, that you can embed a children's ministry worker into the heart of a child that can pay huge dividends down the road. Huge dividends, because the power of those things have tremendous effect. And you may not, it may be a 40-year gap like with Moses before you see any fruit plant, but if you did it and you invested in your children, be encouraged, it will pay off. Hang in there. It will eventually pay off. God will take them through what he needs, take them through like he did with Moses, and eventually, when the right time comes, they will sense their spiritual God-given destiny, and they'll embrace it. it. It has tremendous power I remember when our girls were little, I used to do the bedtime thing with them, and one of the things that I did uh, very early on, when I used to take them in the bedroom, and typically I got that, uh, duty because we were trying to put them to bed and then they would scream and cry and Trish couldn't take that so I had to, you know, she would always want to run back in there and get them. But, but the wonderful thing that came out of that is I became I became bedtime guy. And, and and the wonderful thing with that is it gave me an opportunity not only to pray with my kids and have a bonding moment with them put up with the bed but, but one of the things that I did from the very first day that I had that privilege with my first daughter is when I would pray with them the last thing I would do before I would put them into their crib is, is I would quote Bible verses to them. Because I believe in the power of God's word. So I would pray for them to say, and then I would, before I put them in their crib, when they were infants, infants, before I put them in their crib, I'd say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And God demonstrated this that while we were still sinners Christ died and I I would quote the word of God into their lives because I realized you know what they can't stop me (laughs) and I'm laying the foundation because the sooner I get the Holy Spirit on the inside my life gets better you know (laughs) and I wanted them to come to the Lord at an early age so I just share that you know the value of investing invest in your children the value of it I believe God orchestrated that for Moses and had an incredible impact long term down the road why don't we stand let's pray together